The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving and coming up, England all set for their Sweden semi in Sheffield. But scrutiny on star player Lucy Bronze. Is she shining enough? We'll discuss the shock of Jay Ling's landing at Forest, seafood in the port of Piraeus, an immediate impact on Twitter and who's next in Nottingham. Plus worrying, not good enough and an urgent appeal for new players. Just a sample of Thomas Tuchel's comments as Chelsea edge closer to crisis mode. Maybe. Here's Lucy Bronze. What a goal! What a goal! Norway nil, England three. Once they tried it, twice they tried it. Norway didn't learn. Now they pay the cost. But first, ahead of a huge night for English football on Tuesday, as England take on Sweden in the last four of Euro 2022, there's been question marks about why right-back Lucy Bronze hasn't quite been at her best so far. Flo Lloyd-Hughes has written about it and joins us now. Flo, before we get into Lucy Bronze, I think we need to reflect on what an incredible tournament it's been for England so far and just sum up the excitement ahead of the semi-final for us, if you can, please. Yeah, it's definitely been a, a really good tournament for England so far. They've they've dominated in games, they've put on a show in lots of games and then they've had to, to show a bit of grit, show a bit of fight and uh, come back from the brink and show the 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 desire in them and the, and the heart in this team which i think has been important because since Serena Vigman came in and has in many ways transformed this team, it's been quite an easy road for them. They they conceded a goal in their warm-up game uh, against the Netherlands. They conceded a goal in one of their uh, friendly games in the Arnold Clark Cup in, in uh, March against Germany. But all in all, it's been a pretty easy ride for them in a lot of their games since Vigman came in. They've scored a ton of goals and they've dominated in a lot of those games. But I think what they've learned through the course of this tournament is that you know sometimes they're going to be dominating uh, games and and having a lot of joy and and going to be wowing crowds and sometimes things are going to be a little bit tense but in those tense moments you can also harness that emotion harness that home advantage and really kind of make the most of it and I think the, the Spain court final victory in extra time was certainly a breakthrough for them to kind of know what it's like backs against the as much of it as much of it, it was a wake-up call at the same time around you know how England are a little bit one-dimensional at times and if a team works that out it could be tough going but they made it through they found a way to win and in tournament football that is at the end of the day the most important thing yeah the Spain match in particular Adam just felt like a game for everyone to get behind England go on the ride with them because the victories of the group stages of course were brilliant but that emotion of a real tournament knockout match, the jeopardy, going behind, coming back, winning an extra time, that's just got everyone on board even more now, hasn't it? I think it did, and it, it kind of broadened it kind of broadened the appeal, I think. Um, going from that sense of England can beat uh, Norway 8-0, and I know there's all sorts of generalisations that people make about women's football as a result of that. But, for, you know, just an example, I was, I was back up in Manchester this weekend with family of several generations when I saw my nephew who's nine years old who I'd never actually heard him speak about women's football before you know he's always going on about Ronaldo Messi Neymar and one of the first things he said was oh my god Stanway what a goal and actually I think on the night the facts that you know England went behind and then had to didn't actually play that well I didn't think on the night 
but the jeopardy I think has has kind of stimulated a broader audience which is fantastic yeah and just to add what what Adam's saying I think for for the success of this tournament it was absolutely vital that England made it through that game if England had lost that game the enthusiasm for the tournament certainly in England obviously it's different in the rest of Europe but I think the enthusiasm would have died pretty quickly but this the quarterfinal game was a game in which the the tournament would enter the mainstream consciousness which is exactly what Adam's illustrated with there with that party right and it's been a slow and steady build which it always is for England in major tournaments in terms of like viewing figures we saw a similar increase for the World Cup building to that 10 million for the semi-final and and I think we'll get those sorts of figures on Tuesday for this game against Sweden. We had nearly 8 million for the quarterfinal against Spain. In some of those group games, we had, I think, about 4 million to kind of 5 million. So it's been a, sl- a steady, slow and steady build. But that quarterfinal was massive to break the barrier, to build the excitement. And, you know, now they're going to be having a fan park in Trafalgar Square that should be absolutely rammed watching this game. And I think that is kind of the peak. So if they can get to the final, it will then lift it one step further. And I think, you know, you could have... 12 to 15 million people watching that final at Wembley on TV if, and it's a big if, England make it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It all sounds fantastic though, doesn't it, to be fair? And it's a, it's the goal really, in some senses, from Georgia Stanway, like you were saying, Adam, that, that has just captured everyone's imagination. It's become the talking point, hasn't it, for a lot of people to get fully engaged with this tournament. Of course, it wouldn't be an England tournament flow without discourse around one of the star players. Lucy Bronze is the one this time. You've written about it with Charlotte Harper on The Athletic. People can go and check that out at the moment. But to sum it up, really, something's not quite looked right with England's star player this tournament, has it? Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult one because I think for lots of people who, um, you know, would see maybe the headline and see someone talking about a big star player will think, well, what the hell are you talking about? Um, but I think if you if you do read the piece, and I wrote a lot, so, you know, please do read the whole thing if you can. <laughs> she is, you know, I, I start by saying she is a phenomenal player. She's a phenomenal athlete, right? She is world class and she has won global awards individual awards for a reason so this is not to say she's a fraud absolutely not but she admitted herself and I include the quotes there when she was speaking to the press uh you know Charlotte was was at a media day that England did uh, in the build-up to Tuesday's game and she admitted herself that in 2019 she was in the form of her life she was on top of the world she was in one of those in one of those places where everything you touch turns to gold right um, and I think since then, you know, she she said she played the entire 2020-21 season injured. She then had an operation after the Olympic Games. She missed the first half of this season, just gone. And it's been hard for her in Manchester City. And I think she's carried some of that into this tournament. And the Lucy Bronze that we're used to is now 30 years old. You know, things are always going to be tougher when you get to that point. But there's something around the aura around her and the brand bronze that means she carries herself and she plays still in a certain way. And I think for me, the best way to sum it up is, you know, someone who's 30 but still playing like they're 25. They take the same risks. They approach a game in the same way. But actually, when it comes to pace, decision making, you know, all those important things, you just don't deliver in the same way and whether it's because you know she might be carrying an injury right now we don't know Charlotte asked her in the mix zone after the court Spain quarterfinal about her strapping because she's been carrying it for a lot of the tournament she said you know we all have strapping so who knows if there is an issue there but 
she, I don't think she's the same player. And also the data in which I talk about in the piece kind of showcases that too. And even though she is still physically extremely dominant for England and is so important to them defensively, I think is where we see her passing accuracy, where we see how she performs under a high press that, that Spain and Austria both put on her. She has struggled. And that's why looking ahead to Tuesday, you know, I think there's probably a concern there that if Jonna Anderson returns from COVID for Sweden, which is a question mark, and Fridolina Rolfo, who hasn't had the best tournament, if they press her high, could England be in trouble? And that's probably where I'm trying to get to. So Flo, what's, what would you do as a solution? Are you suggesting you play someone else? No, the solution I think is, is definitely not to play someone else because um, at the moment, England are quite weak in the fullback area and that's not mm. just an issue for this tournament. That's an issue looking far ahead. And it's it's kind of a real issue around Lucy Bronze and her legacy is she's been so good for so long and she wants to carry on being the best that actually there isn't a great... Uh, amount of talent coming behind her who you could automatically slot in that position so it's definitely not a question about dropping her but I think it's about taking the pressure off her because she is targeted because of her name because of what she's done and because of how she plays and what she can do she is targeted so I think it's about relieving the pressure on her in the way that England play and for her probably to to be a little bit smarter in what she does in games as well because she is going to be targeted and she said in in the build-up to Tuesday's game that she relishes having that pressure. She relishes being targeted. And there is also no way that an opposition can target all of England's best players because they have so many of them now. But I think in, we, we saw in the Spain game that there is a way that, that a team can do it and they can do it quite effectively. Um, so I think that's the issue for England. I think... They need to find options to support Lucy Bronze, you know, whether that's on the left-hand side via maybe Alex Greenwood coming in to replace Rachel Daly or, you know, a, a way for England to more effectively go direct and not rely on the passing, uh, you know, the shorter passing going through Kira Walsh, going through Lucy Bronze, because that's, I think, where we see them fall down is where they are forced to go direct, where Lucy Bronze is pressed and she can't effectively deliver the long passes that England need to get out of trouble. Reading through the quotes, Flo, as well, from Lucy, it struck me how how sort of... Um... There's still a sense that she's feeling 2019, and we're three years on from that now. Uh, the way she spoke about it, it felt like it happened just last week. There's there's almost a, a rawness to the way she talks about it. I wonder whether that is having an effect on her as well, that it's still sort of weighing down on her almost, that she missed that opportunity at the World Cup after the defeat to the USA. Yeah, it's an interesting one. and I think in, in that game against Spain, we certainly saw a lot of visible frustration from her, even when the first four, yeah. 15, 20 minutes when it was still nil-nil, she looked frustrated. She It almost you know, felt like she knew that England weren't going to be on top of this game and it was going to be a dogfight and it was going to be a slog. Like and a here we go again type yeah, feel to it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a she's, key point in a tournament. She's you know. that personality anyway. So it's it's not like, you know, it's just that scenario that was that was sending her that way. But it certainly gave the impression like she thought, oh shit, we're in trouble here. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what, what plays out in that game on Tuesday and, and if England are in trouble and are under pressure, how she handles that and how that also then rubs on on the rest of the team because, yeah, you can definitely see that she knows this is going to be one of her last chances to win something with this England team and it's the one thing that has escaped her and for a player of her ability, 
her success, you know, she's she's won it all at club level. She needs to win something with England to not not cement her legacy because she is one of the most important players probably to ever play for England, but just to kind of like rubber stamp what she did for the team because to play at such a high level with such a good group at points over the last like, you know, near decade and come away with nothing would be ridiculous, I think, for, for a player of Lucy Bronze's stature. So I think she feels like, you know, this this tournament being on home soil as well is such a good opportunity that it cannot be wasted. And that pressure must feed into her. But I think she kind of says, you know, we, you know, they all do who were part of that group in 2019. We learned a lot and we're carrying that through now. And we're trying to not focus on the heartbreak. We're trying to harness those brutal experiences and turn it into success this time around. Excellent. Well, let's hope Tuesday is not another brutal experience for our team. Let's hope we can make the final flow. Thank you for coming on and previewing that match. Of course, all the best of the preview to the Sweden game is on The Athletic right now. Okay, next. Who knew that a seafood restaurant in Athens could be so influential? But that was the scene of Nottingham Forest pulling off perhaps the biggest surprise of the summer window so far. Done deal, baby. Let's go. Look, tell a man no trouble. I don't want beef, man. I just want vibes. Big man like me, no need for the Here's Valencia. Ten men are striving for a breakthrough here. They've got it. Jesse Lingard with a thumping goal. History. Yes, Jesse Lingard has signed for Forest over the weekend amid a mass of social media posts, of course. The Athletics' Paul Taylor has now joined Jesse's following naturally and joins us now. Paul, first of all, what have the Forest fans made of Jay Ling's so far and everything that goes with it? I think Forest fans are very excited, you know. They, they, they see it as being a sort of statement of intent, the fact that Forest have gone out and signed a, an, an established England international and somebody who in football terms at least, is is, is a very well-known name. You know, it's it's a big, bold statement move from, from their club and perhaps not something that was expected. So I think Forest fans are very happy to see him here and, and are excited to see what he's going to bring to the table. So they don't mind the, the videos and the J-Ling's number 11 pictures and whatever else and the poses and everything that comes with Jesse these days. They, they, there's a freshness to the Forest fans for that and it's feeding the excitement rather than anything else. The kind of video unveiling that Forrest did for, you know, to kind of announce his signing had like a million views within within hours, which is way, way beyond anything that's ever been seen before at Forest. It's nothing like, you know, the levels that they're normally used to. So I, I guess if you look at it in, in, as that as a barometer, that's that's got to be a a sign that, you know, people are viewing it positively or at the very least they're intrigued and interested to to see what it'll bring. It's a modern world. I don't think I don't think fans are that bothered about players having a TikTok presence or an Instagram account anymore. <laughs> if they produce on the pitch, no. they don't really care, do they? they? They can do what they want as long as as long as they go out there and do what they're meant to do on the pitch every Saturday. Yeah, that's the key thing that you've just mentioned. And I think I'm coming at it from covering Manchester United for a long time and watching Jesse's career there. I think that became only an issue necessarily with what 
uh, Lingard had done on social media or things like the clothing brand and stuff like that, if stuff wasn't going quite right on the pitch. When he had that brilliant impact at West Ham on loan, I don't think there was any West Ham fans moaning at that point about what was going on. Uh, It's just part of the package, really, isn't it? And I thought it was a really interesting point in your piece, which is on The Athletic at the moment, of course, about how Nottingham Forest wooed Jesse Lingard to Nottingham, about how many followers he has got on social media because I did the calculations briefly and just Instagram alone he's got something like 25 times the number of followers that the club's got so even in a statement for raising the profile of Forrest back in the Premier League he's really going to help. Yeah Forrest are very well aware of this as well that was part of their reasoning behind this they've also made an investment in signing Jesse Lingard the player but they also believe they've signed uh, a brand as well that can help them increase their own profile he has got 9.7 9.7 Instagram followers, 9.7 million Instagram followers or something <laughs> in that region, which is yeah. huge, you know. Uh, if he sends out a positive message, then uh, it's only going to help the club increase their own profile. And that, that's got to be a good thing. Uh, like we said before, you know, if players have got a flash car, if they go out and have nice meals, if they're seen out in the town, if, if, if you know, they're making TikTok videos of them dancing, if they're doing well, it's fine. It's only when... They're having a bad spell on the pitch that they should perhaps calm that down and you know use their common sense to 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 not go out and be showing that they're having a good time when things aren't going so well. I guess I don't think Jesse Lingard's as good as people think he is, which is a bit of a problem in terms of the reaction I think to this transfer. And I understand it because you know he's someone we've seen play at World Cups. He's someone who's always on the fringes of the England squad. I think he's the kind of player that if he hits a bit of form, we'll be straight back into Gareth Southgate's squad. Southgate really likes him. But the reality from a club point of view is he's played well for 10 weeks in the past three seasons. That, that That's the truth of it, you know. And you can bring in all different factors around uncertainty around his contract, which meant he was maybe left out at certain times, different times where it looked like he was going to get a move, but he didn't get a move. Um, I think there was a weird period at the start of last season. So <laughs> at the end of the previous season, he'd been on loan at West Ham and he did well, though he didn't actually score in any of his past, his last six games for West Ham. People forget that. At the end of that season, uh, it looked like West Ham were going to sign him. And Man United had a year left on his contract and they had the chance to sell him, I think, around £20, £25 million. Pound. They didn't do that deal. And at the time, it was because partly because he wanted to stay and try and fight for his place, but also because Ole Gunnar Solskjaer thought, actually, I might have a place for him. Um, around the squad. Then Cristiano Ronaldo arrived. And that was something that wasn't clear at the time where Lingard was originally deciding to stay. And he was another one of those players, probably less spoken about, where there was this Ronaldo knock-on effect in terms of minutes that he was able to play. So he played a little bit at the start of last season. He scored a a late goal against West Ham, uh, uh, set up a golden tee for Ronaldo in, in the Champions League against Villarreal. And that was really as good as it got. The, the thing that worried me, I suppose, from a character trait, it, it's not the off-field stuff. It was more, you know, Man United were absolutely awful in the second half of last season. Ralph Ragnick talks a lot about a high-pressing, high-energy style. And Jesse Lingard couldn't get a game. He couldn't get on the pitch, which made me wonder, well, what, what was going on behind the scenes there? that meant he couldn't even get a, a run in a system that seemed pretty well suited to him. So I think he actually goes to Nottingham Forest with a little bit more to prove than maybe a lot of people realise. That doesn't mean he's not a super talented player and that he's not got a huge amount of potential. But I also look at him and think he's a high energy, high pressing player edging towards 30. So how long can he continue to do that thing that Gareth Southgate really liked him doing and 
Solskjaer at the start or Mourinho. And the final thing I'd say is I think he's quite streaky in, in, in his runs of form. So you saw that run of form around 10 weeks or so at West Ham. He had a similar period under Jose Mourinho at Man United where he was fantastic for seven or eight weeks. Then he goes off the boil again. So I'm, I'm interested to see how he does. There's a lot of expectation there. On the flip side of that, Paul, could it help that he's coming to Nottingham Forest with a point to prove and, and these question marks like Adam's talking about there? Because they've clearly made a huge play to get him. I mean, tell us about the seafood restaurant for a start. It's an interesting tale, isn't it? <laughs> the person who told me about that couldn't remember the name of the place, but it sounds very <laughs> much like the uh, restaurant that they, they took us to on a, a pre-season tour in, okay. in Athens a few years ago, which was very picturesque indeed, right in the harbour in Piraeus. And it's it's one of several restaurants owned by the, the owner, Evangelos Marinakis. And uh, it, it, it was all very dramatic when uh, the Olympiacos team were there, who Forrest had just played in a friendly, the Forrest team were there and all the staff. And when Mr. Marinakis arrived, it was it was like some sort of television superstar had arrived. There was cameras flashing, there was television uh, cameras all around everywhere. It was it was all very surreal. He, he really is a big name in in Greece and a, a big character out there. So yeah, if if they took him to that particular restaurant, I can vouch for the fact the food <laughs> was pretty good. So if he if he likes his food, then that that might have been a factor in it, I guess. And <laughs> nice you think having fish. a point to prove arriving. <laughs> is exactly what Forrest will want. And, and I suppose the other side of it is if he, even if he is streaky, a couple of streaks that keep Forrest in the Premier League and it's job done as well. Yeah, exactly. It, everything, it, it, it is a short-term deal. It is there just for a season. And I guess whether he wants to get himself a move elsewhere or whether he wants to stay at Forrest, he's got no shortage of motivation to want to do well. He, he's he got a point to prove himself. He's got to prove that he... Uh, he is somebody that can still produce at the age of 29. He's got to uh, show that he can still cut it at the Premier League level. Maybe, you know, show that he can play consistently because I don't think he's played, I think it's something like 2,000 minutes of football for the yeah. last three or four seasons. Uh, he, he hasn't had a regular run of games for a long time and, and Forrest will expect him to do that. They'll expect him to come in and play 30, 35 games and hopefully contribute towards them staying in the Premier League. How pleased are Forest fans generally with the business that they've been managed to do, managing to do? Obviously, two weeks now until the season starts. Does that starting eleven look ready, clear, as outlined? Maybe I don't know. At the end of season, when you were talking to the club about what they wanted position wise, does it seem pr- pretty good? There's two aspects to this. I think you would say that. Forest fans are very pleased with the business done so far. They've spent around £70 million on uh, 11 new additions, uh, some of whom look look very intriguing, even beyond uh, Jesse Lingard. They've, they've broke the club transfer record, signed uh, Tewu Awanigi from Union Berlin. Uh, he costs £17 million and looks to be quite quite an exciting forward. He's, he's powerful, he's strong, he's got a bit of pace about him and has had flashes of, of of some decent play in, in pre-season. Uh, they signed Nico Williams for a similar amount from Liverpool, who they have very high hopes for, having been left with a void to fill when Jed Spence went back to Middlesbrough and subsequently joined Spurs. He's, he left some very big shoes to fill, but Nico Williams already looks to be quality. Beyond the additions they've made, however, there is still a notable void in in, in several areas of the pitch. In, in in central midfield, for example, you know, we've had Jack Colback and, and Cafu playing there for much of pre-season. And as, as much as Jack Colback is a, a proven uh, player for Forest and indeed in the Premier League, they do very much need to strengthen in the centre of the pitch. They're still interested in James Garner from Manchester United, but that one might drag on for a while and I wouldn't put my house on it actually happening or not. Are they also, I suppose, victims of the Frankie de Jong saga? 
dragging on? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, to some degree. Uh, but then again, they, they said that they wanted, uh, there was a suggestion that Ten Hag wanted to look at James Garner in pre-season. And, he's had uh, injuries as well, hasn't he? Which yeah. has stopped that being able to, to happen, really. Yet. He's only played 20 minutes, hasn't he, I think? Yeah. And, and, you know, is that enough time for him to be able to make a decision on it? It, it, it probably isn't. But, uh, you know, Forrest probably are going to be getting to the point where they need to look at alternative targets to try and bolster their their midfield, you know, area. Because they've got Ryan Yates as well, but he's currently out injured. But it just that, that, that one area of the pitch is where they're a little bit short. They could probably do with another striker as well. They're still trying to sign another left back. Even though they've signed Lingard, they want another kind of number 10 player as well. There's still some interest in Morgan Gibbs-White, but they don't, they haven't really accelerated that one again having had a few tentative inquiries previously is, is there much money left uh it, it appears so yeah they're, they're, they're talking about you know maxwell corney uh from burnley they're really keen on him and he he would probably cost him somewhere between uh 15 and, and 17 million pounds i think he's got a, a clause in his contract that would allow him to leave for 17 and a half which nobody's reached yet but you know that's the kind of the the, the feeling is is that they've got at least enough money left to start uh, you know, trying to trying to sign players like him. So it feels like there's a little bit of leeway left to spend just a little bit more cash just yet, yeah. You know, listening to you, Paul, it's no wonder Nottingham Forest fans are excited. You know, we, we were sort of picking at Jesse Lingard a little bit, just like we were picking at Lucy Bronze in the chat before with Flo, to be fair. But to have these conversations around Forest, this is what the fans have been waiting for for a quarter of a century, isn't it? No wonder there's excitement. They're not bothered if Jesse Lingard's dancing on TikTok that United fans have been moaning about forever. Evangelos Maranakis, in the few days after promotion, there was a big presentation in in at the council house in, in Nottingham, in the Market Square, and there's thousands and thousands of fans gathered to sort of celebrate the promotion and the, the players were up on the balcony and, uh, and, and Maranakis came out and gave a little speech in which he sort of said, we're not here to make up the numbers. We're going to give Steve Cooper a, a squad that is capable of more than competing at a Premier League level and, and going on perhaps even to write fresh chapters in the history of, of Forest. you know, looking back to the European Cup winning days. Uh, he wasn't for a minute saying they're going to go and get into Europe in the near future, but he was just saying it's time now to write some new chapters. And it, it's kind of predictable when owners say that kind of thing. But what he's done in subsequent weeks is go out and absolutely back up those words. Well, in terms of what Steve Cooper's been saying about the signings and I suppose those players that were there that were central to the promotion push, do you have a sense of how they're feeling about the club going out and buying so many players because there's times aren't there where you get like when Fulham have come up so many times and seems to have just bought everyone and then they get relegated and they go back to the players that got them promoted originally and things is there a sense that, that there is this collective buy-in to, to what's going on there a lot of the players who were here last season and played an integral role have already gone anyway the, the, there is there is a group like the central defenders are all still there like Steve Cook Joe Worrell Scott McKenna uh they're still part of, of the team and will very much form a, a, a fulcrum of it. Uh, in, in goal, Brees Samba's left as well, so you've got to change there. There, there. There has been, just through circumstance, quite a big level of change already. But I think the players that are still here from last season who were part of that promotion-winning side are, are, are all pretty much on, on board with it, I think. There's not many of them that aren't going to still play a role in this team, I don't think. If you look at Brennan Johnson, he's going to play regularly. The three centre-halves have mentioned are probably going to play regularly. There aren't many players whose position in the side has been hugely altered because of the new arrivals so far, I wouldn't say. Thanks, Paul. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, a 4-0 defeat then for Chelsea over the weekend against London rivals Arsenal prompted some extremely pointed comments from Thomas Tuchel with the club's transfer activity, his players' commitment and their pre-season preparation all on the manager's mind. We're simply not good enough. We're absolutely not competitive. There's only two weeks till the start of the season. Are you confident that you'll be in a good place and you'll be ready in two weeks? I cannot guarantee. We have players who left and and, and this is, I I think, at the moment obvious. At the moment I feel that I was right when I looked at the the last season and um, at uh, the, the... at the parts of the game where we struggled, parts of the season where we struggled and how we struggled. And then, you know, we got sanctioned, you know, players left us, you know that some players are trying to leave us and this is where it is. So we had uh, uh, urgent, <laughs> urgent appeal for quality players and a huge amount of quality players. We got two quality players in there, there's no doubt, but uh, we are not competitive like this and unfortunately we could see it today. We will see hopefully development, but uh, at the moment we, we, we have maybe the same issues because we have the same players. The Athletic Simon Johnson had the very difficult task of touring America, California, Las Vegas and everywhere else covering Chelsea over the summer. But Simon, when you left, it all seems to have gone to pot and these latest comments from Thomas Tuchel are really, really sharp, aren't they? Well, hello Ian. What can I say? Um, Chelsea just can't live without me. Um, no, it's... <laughs> This is Thomas Tuchel, for one thing. This is a man that 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 is prone to not exactly um, speaking uh, in a calm fashion. It was right to be um, upset. I mean, it was it was a woeful performance against Arsenal. He's right to be concerned. I think everyone connected to the club should be concerned with the way Chelsea have been playing on pre-season. But I, I think there's an air of inevitability about this, in the sense that. Chelsea are very undercooked. They've only played three preseason games. And on top of that, he's got this huge squad, a mishmash of players he wants and players he doesn't want or players that want to leave. And yet he's still having to give them minutes. So essentially, players have only played sort of like one and a half games, um, you know, sort of in terms of first-teamers. First um, I, I just thought there's a huge, huge disparity between... Um, you know, sort of Chelsea, the way Chelsea are playing in Arsenal. Arsenal look like they're they're ready to go. Chelsea look a, a long way off, and the the, the squad that's going to start the season is not necessarily going to be the squad on September the first, stroke second. That the owners are trying to make buys here. It's not like they're they're sort of twiddling their thumbs and thinking, well, sign Sterling, sign Koulibaly, that's it. But inevitably, they're, they're experiencing some teething problems, some reality checks in, in the sense that they've gone for Rafinha, Barcelona got him, they've gone for De Ligt, Bayern Munich have got him. Um, it, it's not just a simple case of we're Chelsea 
we're new owners, here's our money, and, and we're going to get the guys you want. So I think there's a lot of frustration with Tuchel that he hasn't got the squad he wants to start the season ready to go now. But I think there was an, a sort of inevitability about that, to be honest. Do you think there's a slight tension in, I think Tuchel probably looks at this season, you know, his second full season, third season, as he's probably desperate to try and go and win the Premier League. And the owners are in a little bit of a transition period um, in terms of how they're going to rebuild the squad. And you know that Man City and Liverpool, they've done their business early. They're going to be flying out the traps you would expect. And just looking at Chelsea's fixtures, I mean, they've not got they've not got nightmare fixtures at the start of the season, but they've got awkward ones. You know, going to Everton, going to Leeds, Spurs and Liverpool in their first eight games as well. Derby against Fulham. Even if you're getting that squad ready for the start of September, with how early the season's starting, there is actually a danger you, you can fall away if you're not ready. Yeah, um, you, you're right. In, in to highlight that, I think Tuchel is very anxious, sort of quite impatient to catch up with Klopp and Guardiola. But those guys have been at the helm for several years and been able to build the squad over time. He's only been there for eighteen months. He's only signed technically. Three players. We don't count the mighty Marcus Bettinelli um, or Sam Niguez. Um, and of course, Lukaku's already backfired. That was a disaster. He's gone. So he's asking a lot. Not that not that Tuchel wants time. He wants to be competing with those guys now. But in reality, to catch up with those two teams is an incredibly tough ask because one that they're, they're the two of the best teams anyway, and. You're right, Adam. They, they, they've gone out and strengthened again, you could say. So, yeah, I, I think we, we're getting a picture of a guy that is great, that he, he's not settling for what he's done so far, Champions League, um, the Super Cup and Club World Cup last season. It's going to take longer than I think that he's prepared to accept. And, and he's not a guy that can, can, can cope with chasing. He wants to be up there with those guys now. Who do you blame? Whose fault is it? Well, you would say that this is a fault of Chelsea's transfer spending since they last won the title in 2017. Yeah, you, you look at you look at how many great buys they've had in that time. There aren't that many. If you look at their attack compared to the teams they're up against, for starters, you'd say they're behind City and Liverpool, but you'd also rank their attack below Tottenham's. You'd rank their attack possibly now below Arsenal's. Now they've signed Jesus to strengthen. Man United, question mark. Um, it's very difficult to win league titles with with an attack like Chelsea's, the one that Chelsea have right now. And that e- that's even with the addition of Raheem Sterling. Now, a lot can change in the next few weeks. But you know, right now, I think the, the maximum, I, I personally think that Chelsea can achieve this season is, is again, trying to fight for that top four spot and, and winning a domestic trophy. Do you think Spurs are more ready for this season? Yeah. Yeah, I think they'll finish I above Chelsea. Are. Not necessarily because Chelsea have that sort of that know-how, but Tottenham are in, in great, great shape. Um, of course, they've got a manager there that has that has won a league title uh, in in the Premier League, and has, has won titles obviously pretty much everywhere he's gone. But Spurs are are a serious force. They were they're catching Chelsea at the back end of last season and Arsenal. I mean, that's the other problem that that, that Chelsea season. It, it almost feels like Tuchel's been a negative mindset since April, because Chelsea's season really did nosedive in, in the last sort of six to eight weeks. Um, going out to the Champions League, their league form was appalling. Um, and it's almost like he's carried that into 
um, pre-season and he's concerned that the same problems that were there back in the last season are still there, which is the defence isn't as good as it was and the attack isn't firing. Yeah, you can read more about Tuchel's comments, of course, on The Athletic. They're very, very pointed for Chelsea fans and very interesting, I'm sure, for the fans of Premier League rivals as well. I guess the point, Simon, a little bit is that was this not almost inevitable considering the changes that had to be made with the ownership and obviously the structure behind the scenes as well? There's been announcement after announcement and change after change that also needed to be made and all this was being done at a time when City and Liverpool and others were getting their houses in order. Chelsea just couldn't do that, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean Chelsea have gone through a pretty unprecedented um, thing, haven't they? I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's been the most bonkers six months arguably of my Chelsea reporting life since they really? won since yeah since they won I mean I'm, I think I've got the bags to prove it um since but they, that's quite a statement isn't it considering how um interesting a club Chelsea is to cover yeah, at times yeah well yes yeah, I've my word carefully yeah now. yeah it's never, <laughs> never a dull moment but no. even by their standards the last six months they go and win the Club World Cup in Abu Dhabi and then it all kicks off with with Roman Abramovich and and it's been non-stop ever since and Look, the takeover was completed the end of May. They then sort of get rid of Marina Granovskaya, this influential director um, who's been in charge of incomings, outgoings in terms of negotiations, plus player contracts. Petr Cech, who um, Tuchel has effectively revealed, was far more hands-on than perhaps many outside the club realised. Bruce Buck going is, is not so much... Um, of a blow or, or, or a thing to recover from in terms of the transfer situation. But you've then got these new guys coming in and they think, yeah, we, we run businesses, successful businesses. We know how to, how to do this, but it's still a tough ask to come in the back end of May and go straight into a transfer window and go, right, we're going to fly around Europe and we're going to buy him, 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 and him. It's not as simple as that. And especially when you're up against, you're going for the top players that they, they've been going for. You know, it's not like they're going for sort of so-so players that are quite easy to prize out of clubs. They're going for guys that, as I said, that, that Barcelona and Bayern Munich want. So I, I think there is a, a big degree of inevitability about the struggles that, that Chelsea have faced. But um, it's not all doom and gloom either. You know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think, you know, Chelsea are in crisis mode yet. I still think there's a lot of reasons to be positive. But for them to catch up with City and Liverpool was, was going to be a tough ask whether there was new owners there or not. Obviously, you're talking about the strikers' position or forwards. There's two really big players who are available at the moment, um, and I think they'll probably continue to be available over the next few weeks. And Chelsea are in this slightly weird position where they're under a lot of pressure to do deals. Ronaldo, Neymar, is there any world in which Chelsea become a little bit panicky and get involved with those or not at all? I was under the impression, certainly out on tour, that it's, it's certainly Ronaldo is a no-no. And I actually wrote a story to that to that degree, uh, to that in that regard, because... Are you telling me to read our own website? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but was it a no-no at that point that could change or was it a no-no, no-no, no-no? It sounds like uh, Sajo. It sounds like a song uh, by um, Destiny's Child. You know the next line is yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. That song, though, yeah? <laughs> oh, this is superb. In terms of Ronaldo, they, they were definitely, obviously, we all know um, 
again, it was another story that, that we did, not that I did, uh, about Todd Bowley meeting George Mendes, um, and it was definitely discussed, and, and there, were definitely, there was definitely interest there. But the impression, and very strong impression given, it was that it wasn't going to happen because it would become the Ronaldo show. And, and they're very, very wary of, of it all becoming Ronaldo show. Now, that might appeal. Um, obviously, I think beforehand, you'd sort of go, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. New owners come in. What a statement signing that is. But I think uh, logistically, um, what it would mean for Chelsea in terms of their profile would go through the roof. But for the team, for the dressing room, is that the best thing to happen? I don't think so, even though he brings goals. And so I don't think that'll happen. And I think given two calls challenges of working with Neymar or certainly challenges of working at PSG again for the same reason I'd, I'd be surprised if they did something like that Adam were you asking that question because you thought it could be something that ends up happening I just I just wondered because sometimes you can see when you know new owners come in and they're desperate to impress fans they can start, I'm not saying this is the case with the new Chelsea owners but they can start to pay a little bit too much attention to what's being said on the internet and as owners or chairman, chief execs become under pressure in a transfer window, sometimes agents just keep throwing options, keep throwing options, and eventually they land. I kind of probably think of kind of like Ed Woodward doing Radamel Falcao and deals like that over, over the... I mean, Chelsea did Radamel Falcao, um, of, of course. Um, that, that was all that I was thinking. And also, I think I do think the Neymar situation... <laughs> I'd say he's probably 75% going to stay at PSG just because he's got nowhere to go really um, at the moment on the wages. And it feels a little bit similar with Ronaldo really in terms of no one seems to be able to match the salary even with a significant reduction. Um, and I think they're also probably at a stage of career now, aren't they, where you start to say, is it worth all that indulgence? You know, what we will actually get on the pitch in terms of output, is it worth everything that's maybe associated with it. I think clubs are being a little bit more circumspect, but these players always tend to find somewhere uh, to land in the end, don't they? That's, that was the only reason. It wasn't, um, It wasn't. I've heard Chelsea are going to sign Ronaldo and Neymar. Um, yeah. But if it helps enough. you to clip that up and put it out, then go for it. <laughs> yeah, we've done it now already. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, and I'm not sure I should repeat this because uh, I, I got the impression that it didn't go down that well because I included it in my... In my pre-season tour piece, but um, you may as well double down. Uh, I'll double down on it. I, I've gone there now. My chips are in. Uh, Las Vegas reference. Um, <laughs> Jose Feliciano, one of the co-owners, um, he actually came over and spoke and was was kind of uh, very light-hearted, sort of very banterous conversation with uh, a few of us in the, in the in the press that were there. And it was by Chelsea's training ground at U- UCLA campus. And he actually went, oh we're going to sign Neymar and Ronaldo. And it was kind of like a very light-hearted, jokey comment. You know, it was, it was very tongue-in-cheek. He, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't a genuine story, although one website ended up reading my copy and turning it into a story, which, uh, like I said... That, there's always one. There's always one. But yeah. um, but no, I think the, the impression I got or was given is that Raheem Sterling is very much... They want to make him the marquee guy. They want to make him the sort of the, the star man. Uh, of Chelsea's attack. It's just trying to get someone else, I think, another Rafina type to play on the other flank with Havertz in the middle. And then suddenly it does look a bit more exciting. But but going with... Has he, has he, has he given up on Werner? Well, I think Werner's given up on Werner, if, if that makes sense. 
it's not been great between those two for a while. And Werner wants to leave. He was very poor on Saturday night. He was given a chance to to show what he can do and, and once again fluffed his lines. It, it was a performance to me that the stank of a player that wants to leave, that, that his confidence is shattered in the Chelsea shirt. And I, I don't think Tuchel genuinely trusts him as much as he sort of said in response to Werner's comments last week, he said, oh, Werner should feel like the luckiest person in the world to be at Chelsea. And, and yeah, people might, might, might question that, but you know, you know what he's thinking. He's paid great. He's paying for a very sort of successful club. And yet he sort of looks like he's got the, the weight of the world on his shoulders. But um, it seems to me that Werner's confidence is gone and he does want to leave. But is there a club that is willing to pay his wages? And this is the, this is the problem that Tuchel has inherited since taking over. Uh, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, he's got this huge squad full of players on big money, many signings that haven't worked out or don't want to don't want to be there anymore or he doesn't rate. And it's very, very difficult for him to shift them on and bring the players he wants in. When managers talk like the speak in the way that Tuchel did over the past weeks, it was also the who was the the American team they lost against on penalties. Charlotte. Charlotte midweek. He was also pretty strong. And I know people always say, oh, preseason doesn't matter and it's all about learning and things like that. But I mean, I remember pre-seasons, you know, for example, Mourinho's last preseason at Man United. Set the tone, it really it? can Completely. set the tone for what's going to come next. And mm. Tuchel, I kind of wonder, you know, you look at his relationship with Lukaku, with Werner, do the players generally still like him? Because it's been a pretty, it's been a pretty strange, through no fault of his own, in, you know, given the ownership change and all that kind of thing. He had a lot to manage last season. There was a lot of dressing room politics, but also off-field politics to, to manage. He, he almost needs to reset a little bit, doesn't he? I appreciate your point as well. I mean, I, I was at the uh, the, the superb um, pre-season tour 2015, another Mourinho masterclass, um, where, where you could see the, the this bizarre situation of the title winners and four months, four, four or five months later, he was sacked. Yeah, but you could see it all unwinding there is Tuchel still popular yeah but that doesn't mean there aren't issues and there have been issues for a while with certain players and I think this is why you've got this awkward scenario of players he wants to leave and players that want to leave that are still there at the club and until that happens there's always going to be this bit of underlying tension um, in the dressing room but also that we all know what football's like. It's 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 about results. So as soon as they get a couple of wins, everything's hunky dory again. Um, and don't forget, a week ago everything was hunky dory as far as Chelsea were concerned. Um, just a couple of bad results, and suddenly it's it's classic Chelsea. You know, I've been here so many so many times before. It's all over. Everything's going wrong. How long is Tuchel going to be manager for? Chelsea fans going mental about signings and who they're not signing what what's going on with Jules Kunde why can't they sign this guy I mean this is what what Chelsea's about but I, I I'll only start to sort of really sort of think okay there, there's bigger issues at stake here if they get off to a bad start to the season which is perfectly possible but they could easily win the first three and and suddenly uh, everyone's all upbeat again <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, before we go, a reminder that the Athletic is following England every step of the way in the Euros this summer with our daily women's football podcast. So make sure you're subscribed to that. The Athletic is, of course, as well, the only place to be to be right up to date with all the big transfer news. And you can subscribe now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But for the minute, thank you for listening. Come on, England, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. The Athletic.